This is 105.9 The Region, where parents talk and explore practical, proactive, and evidence-based solutions. This is Where Parents Talk with Leanne Castellino. Great to have you along for this edition of Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. Thanks for joining us. I'm Leanne Castellino. Each week, we strive to bring you actionable advice and proven strategies on a range of topics affecting moms and dads, with a particular focus for parents of teens and young adults. We do this by looking at what the science says, as well as the lived experience of our invited guests, all of whom are parents themselves. On today's show, it is the subject of frequent headlines and much angst. With technology and the online world continually advancing, there is a long list of things to be aware of when it comes to parenting in the digital age. Is a fear-based approach the only option when raising digital natives? What does it take to raise a digitally responsible child? To discuss this, we're joined by someone who studies the relationship between digital media, technology, and children. Dr. Devorah Heitner is also a speaker, a mother of one, and author of ScreenWise, helping kids thrive and survive in their digital world. She joins us today from Chicago. Dr. Heitner, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here. You have been quoted as saying parents are worried about the wrong things when it comes to the topic of digital media. What do you mean by that? Well, it's easy for parents to get caught up in the Facebook whistleblower and worrying about more extreme situations, you know, kids being abducted, et cetera, you know, intense cyberbullying. And those things are real. Of course, we need to take care that our kids aren't meeting up with strangers, that our kids aren't bullying or being bullied. Uh, Those are real. But we need to look at the more everyday experiences that all kids will have, right? Because those experiences are not, you know, the, the extreme experiences are not universal. Whereas all kids are going to experience feeling left out on social media or social media comparison. All kids are going to make various etiquette errors when they first start texting and emailing. And so these are the things we sometimes forget about, which is just like kind of the lower level prep we need to do of just how do you email your teacher if you don't understand the homework? Or how do you text a friend if you need to talk something through? We forget to teach our kids how to do those things because we're so worried about these big threats or we're so overwhelmed by worries about content or what they might see that we forget to talk with them about these kind of everyday situations and and texting, et cetera. It's such an important point because it does feel like a big, large black hole that people just get sucked into. And you might be trying to get out of it as a parent, but you just feel like you're getting pulled, you know, further and further down. So on that note, like when it comes to parents of teens and young adults, what would you say that they should be focusing their time on when it comes to their child's digital media usage and consumption? I would ask your kids what their experiences are like. And especially if they want something new, like a new app, what do they want to do with it? What are they seeing on TikTok that attracts them to the app? Why do they want to start a YouTube channel? If they want to use Discord to talk with their friends about a TV show or anime or gaming, what's going on there? Do they know the moderators? Do they feel like it's important to be part of that community? So you want to understand which of your child's interests is drawing them to different online communities and not just generalize. It's easy to look at a kid and say they're always on their phone. 
But are they on their phone texting friends? Are they on their phone watching a gaming channel? Are they on their phone, you know, posting to a fan website? You want to understand more about what they're doing. And also, if you're still in a situation where you're maybe introducing a phone or things are newer, can you go slower and go one by one? You know, can you work on texting and make sure your child has some positive experiences with texting before you expand the contact list too much? Can you get good at texting before you add a social app? Can you get competent reasonably in one social app and kind of understand the way that one works before you add another social app? Because if you if you kind of load a kid up with, you know, here's Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, and, you know, 50 games and texting, that's a lot of competencies to learn at once for kids who are still kind of figuring out who they are. Absolutely. You are listening to Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino, and we're talking about parenting in the digital age with our guest, Dr. Devorah Heitner, author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and the Washington Post. Now, I want to pick up on something you just said there. You know, many parents listening to this are going to say, I am nowhere near as digitally savvy as I need to be in order to have any kind of, you know, meaningful discussion with my son or daughter. What would you say to them? Well, you don't need to be an expert on Minecraft or Snapchat or Discord. What you want is for your child to show you some things they're seeing or ask them questions like, you know, if, have you ever seen something on TikTok that was concerning or that freaked you out? Why did it bother you? Or have you seen someone post on Instagram something you would never post or something that didn't seem to connect with who they really are as a person if it's someone you know? These are really helpful conversations and you definitely want as much as possible for your child to be showing you the places they're spending time, especially for a younger teen. You know, if they're spending tons of time on a YouTube channel or following a certain influencer on TikTok or Instagram, have them show you how that person's posting, what they're posting, so you can get a sense of, if you will, what neighborhood of the internet your kid is hanging out in and what are some of the challenges in that space. You know, if it's a YouTube channel, is it offering a lot of merch and trying to get your kid to put in a credit card number? Or you'd kind of want to know about that. Is it trying to draw your child into divisive political spaces. You definitely want to know about that. Is it, you know, a gaming channel and it's just hard for them to regulate their time on it? What can you do to work with them on regulating that time so they're still getting sleep and getting homework done? For a lot of kids, that's the biggest challenge with tech is not that it's so harmful for them, but that they might struggle to regulate that time on tech uh, in order to get other things done and, you know, sleep and physical activity and time with family, et cetera. What would you offer as some potential guiding principles for parents of teens around privacy, setting limits, as well as safety? Well, for privacy, it's so important to respect your kids' privacy by asking permission before you post their picture and having conversations with them so they know that that should be a norm, that they should ask friends before they post their picture or share their news, and that it's okay for them to set those same boundaries with peers. Make sure that they know that algorithms are following them and that they may want to do things in ways to try to avoid that. And especially let them know that if they like things or follow things on certain social accounts, that the algorithm may hone in on that in ways that might be problematic. So one example that we've seen a lot of conversations around since the Facebook whistleblower, you know, in these recent weeks 
is following fitness or dieting information can very quickly lead to very problematic information that could be really harmful for anyone's body image. So it's really important for kids to understand that what they follow is going to is going to affect them algorithmically um, in terms of their privacy. In terms of safety, a really important measure is just making sure kids are unplugged at night when their inhibition is lower. So that keeps them safe from making poor decisions when they are sleep deprived and also keeps them from missing sleep, which is so crucial for adolescents' physical and mental health. Um, I think that was, you know, the the main question. The other thing is just keeping the line of communication open and making sure that your child can talk with you about things they see, conflicts they may, you know, become part of in a group text or social media, fears that they have, concerns they might have about a peer. They need to know that they can talk with you and that you'll be supportive and not judgmental. Even if your child has shared something that they regret sharing, like an explicit image, Rather than being punitive, you want to be on your child's side and work with them to help solve the problem and keep them safe. It's so important that our kids know that they can talk with us and that they have empathy when they're posting and sharing and that we have empathy for them. So they also need to always remember, and we can help them with this, to remember that there's always someone else on the other side of the screen when we're posting, when we're sharing, when we're commenting. So we don't want to kind of get that disinhibition, that internet disinhibition that sometimes leads people to comment in really unkind ways. We want to be sure we're remembering, hey, I'm having communication with other people and uh, that can have an impact on them. Now, you wrote ScreenWise in 2016 and it's described as a handbook or guide for parents. Why did you want to write this book? So many parents are so lost and overwhelmed and they're judging their parenting based on screen time. Like if my kid spends a lot of time on a device Maybe I'm not such a great parent. And I think it, it needs to be much more nuanced than that. We need to look at, you know, take away the judgment and focus on how, are t- how is tech helping our lives? How, is, how are screens positive? And in what ways are they negative and adding stress or distracting us from other things? And really make as much as possible mindful decisions about when to use tech, including as parents, because we're an important model for our kids and we don't want to be so busy texting and scrolling ourselves that we're missing them and not talking with them, not hearing them, not seeing them. So we want to be good models and we want to understand the ways they're using tech. And if they're using tech for learning, for sharing, connecting with friends and exploring their interests, it could be really great for them. Where we want to intervene and help them set some limits is if it's causing them a lot of social negativity or if it's encouraging so much social comparison or if it's leading them into negative content like pornography, those are places where we want to intervene. But more often, we just need to better understand like, hey, what is it that my kid loves so much about Minecraft? And are there ways I can help them extend some of those interests into some other things? Um, If they love cooking videos, can they be making dinner? You know, what can we do with this that's pragmatic and fun? And, And how can we also look to bring some of this together as a family? Is there a show we could watch together or can we enjoy creating TikToks together? Are there things that are are fun that might bring the family together? And so if we dismiss our kids' screen time because we don't understand it, we're missing a huge opportunity to connect with our children. And and on that note, I mean, a lot of parents listening to this might say, you know what, I spend more time spying on what my child is doing. I've got all of the, you know, apps and, and different ways to make sure that I'm monitoring what they're doing more than really asking them and having that conversation that you are suggesting. So how does that parent make a pivot? 
I think it's important not to spy on our kids. And especially if you have a kid who's doing okay. I mean, I think if you have a kid who's gone through extremely concerning mental health issues, that might be a different scenario. But if you have a kid who's doing okay and making pretty good choices, you know, the kid who occasionally might prefer gaming over homework, but isn't in extreme trouble, I would be just in dialogue with them rather than spying. Because the the problem with using apps to know what your kid is doing or GPS tracking them is it's going to give you a false illusion that you know what's going on, whereas talking with them and observing them, you know, are they talking with friends? Do they have a group to sit with at lunch? Are they sleeping well at night? Are they still enjoying activities that they used to enjoy or if they found new things that they like, if your kid is taking pleasure in something, if they have one friend, these are great signs for their mental health. And I think especially this, you know, this far into a pandemic, we're really looking at, are our kids okay? So if you were reading all your kids' texts and reliving, you know, junior high or high school, you may want to not do that, especially if what you're seeing just confuses you or or leaves you stressed but with with no place to go i would try talking with your kids instead and if if you have a kid whose social skills you're worried about you could say hey let's look at the, your text together for these first few months here using a phone and so i can see that you're getting a handle on it Ra- rather than trying to catch our kids doing the wrong thing we should always be thinking how can we teach them to do the right thing Lots of wonderful insight and certainly an optimistic note to end on. Dr. Devorah Heitner, author of ScreenWise, helping kids thrive and survive in their digital world. We really appreciate your time and perspective today. Thank you. Lots more ahead here on Where Parents Talk. When we come back, using food to build bridges. We'll speak to the author of a new book that tackles a timeless topic with a tasty twist. Stay with us. Want to learn more about the show? Email info at whereparentstalk.com. Stick around. Leanne Castellino and Where Parents Talk will be right back on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Where Parents Talk. Listen live at 1059theregion.com. Here's Leanne Castellino. Welcome back. We're going to switch gears now from digital devices to diverse diets. Picky palates and finicky eaters, whether they're kids or adults, are the intended audience for our next guest's first published work. It's a book written for children, parents, and educators infused with themes that transcend age. The author is a resident of York Region. Rishma Govani is also a mother of two and a communications professional. Her book is called Sushi and Samosas. Rishma, welcome to Where Parents Talk, and thank you for being here. Thanks for having me here. What was the impetus? What made you decide to sit down and write this book? This book was a passion project that I think was lingering for a really long time. And it was baking or marinating for almost a decade, which it was written, um, it was written close to that time. Uh, originally the, I think the inspiration behind the book is a food dinner club that I used to host, which was called TFLC, which stands for Toronto Food Black Club. That club was, um, committed and dedicated to trying a different cuisine every month. So as a group, we would travel to the hidden gems, um, the small little restaurants, the unknown and, and try different fruits. And it would be Somalian, Ethiopian, Cuban, 
maybe one or two of those restaurants existed at the time in the GTA. Uzbekistan we did. And so there was always this idea of trying new things. And there was a great reception around this dinner club. When my kids came around, the club itself really started to slow down. I think my son came to a few. It just wasn't the same bedtime. All the things that you experience as um, a young parent were in effect. Um, but the idea of trying new things, having a, a range of experiences, that was always there. And I think that was really the impetus for the book. Now, it's interesting. You definitely sound like you have all the criteria of being a professional foodie. There's no doubt about it. So why did you choose food as the central focus of sushi and samosas? Well, is there a better way to get to know each other? Food is just yummy and delicious, and we all uh, love it. It brings communities together. It brings families together. It brings couples together. We all center our lives around food. And so I think food is a really common denominator between uh, different cultures and backgrounds. And it's a great way to know each other. I think it's a, a simple way, but it's an everyday way that we can interact with one another. I was thinking about other ways. And I think music is probably another one that really unites us, uh, unites us in uh, local communities and global communities. But I think food is, is, is the one I chose to focus on because it's, it, it's omnipresent in our lives and we all center our lives around it. Now, this is a children's storybook, and I'm wondering if you could give us some, some of the sort of the highlights of it for people who may not have read it yet. So the book is called Sushi and Samosas, and it follows two really reluctant children. Their names are Rain and Asha. And uh, they skew younger and they have a very strict diet of chicken nuggets and fries. They are risk averse and they do not want to try new foods. Their parents, on the other hand, are true foodies. They love to go out and discover new foods. They love to cook in um, and have meals inside go to different grocery stores and try different foods, go to different people's houses and have gatherings that revolve around food. So the children are exposed to this, but they're very, very hesitant, very resistant. And the parents have some common lines. The more you try, the more you fly is, is one of the common refrains. It's in a rhyming prose, the book. And so every time the child takes a bite of whatever that local cuisine offers, for example, when they uh, order Greek food and the kids are totally against it, the daughter takes a bite of the tzatziki and her mind explodes. It literally shows up of imagery of Santorini and different areas of Greece. Just with that one bite, her world completely opens up and it's a game changer. You are listening to Where Parents Talk here on 105.9 The Region. I'm Leanne Castellino and we're talking about inclusivity and lifting barriers through food with mom and first-time author Rishma Govani. Remember, you can learn more about our guests as well as discover other parenting interviews with newsmakers on hot topics by visiting whereparentstalk.com.
Rishma, I want to pick up on that last point of yours. When we're talking about picky eaters, and certainly we either live with them or we know somebody who is in that category, it's, it's certainly very common. How do you handle picky eating or resistance to trying new things in your own home with your own two kids? The deal in our household is try it, take one bite. I often think maybe one bite isn't really fair to the food itself. Maybe two or three, and then you really get a flavor of, of what you're going to eat. And, and then if you don't like it, you can walk away. But I'm really happy that you tried. And I think that's sort of the ethos with uh, the way that we've always parented. And that could be a sport or, you know, trying something else in in general. It doesn't have to be around food, but you got to try it. You can't pass judgment and hate something that you haven't tried before because that's really unfair. But it's not a perfect world. I myself am resistant. There are certain smells or certain textures Um, So it's always a self-check to make sure that I'm exhibiting and role modeling the same same words, right? Or it's the same behavior that I'm trying to instill on others, uh, specifically my kids. So it's, I think it's positive role modeling and then really just in positive encouragement to try and then not force it. After, after it's been tried, I, I tend to back off. As we mentioned, the book is targeted for a younger audience, but the theme is pertinent to children of all ages and certainly adults. So what would you say parents of teens and young adults could take away from this book? I think it's the idea of constantly um, trying and challenging yourself. It's a universal message that can apply to all age ranges and all backgrounds. And I think it's that, you know, Is it every few years that you try that? Oh, I tried sushi once. I did like it. Well, where did you have it? Who made it? Was it hot? Was it cold? Was it served in a restaurant? How about you try that again? And I think often we just lock ourselves into a box and say, no, I'm done. But I think we change. Our tastes change. So it's really relevant to teens, young adults, parents, and beyond to keep trying You know, they say that, you know, the same lessons are repeated over and over. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Maybe there's something that, you know, you think you've made up your mind on. And it's it's so amazing when that changes. I remember I was really against olives. I didn't like olives. And I really liked the idea of olives. And it took me, you know, 20 years, 25 years later. And now I like olives. You know, it just something changed. Your palate changes. Uh, hormonally, there's shifts, there's changes that are happening all the time. Or um, your friends and your colleagues change, then they might expose you to different things. So you might be more willing if you're in new crowds and uh, new people to try things. You're going to university, you might be out on your own for the first time, you might be eating out at different restaurants, depending on the location of your school and what's around uh, the school. And you might take the cue from from your friends, not your parents anymore. And they're all eating it and they seem to be enjoying this particular shawarma. Maybe I need to give it a try. So it's not just, you know, um, the encouragement coming from parents. It can absolutely come from your peers, which is probably a stronger uh, way to get in, especially in the teen and, and young adult years. 
especially today, the themes around adapting to change, embracing the new, you know, the uncertainty that we live in in the world today, the, the, the fallout from the pandemic, the ongoing pandemic. I mean, it's a long list of, of different situations that, uh, you know, would make this theme very resonant uh, for all age groups, as you say. So what feedback on the book has struck you most? The feedback has been delicious, yummy, all puns intended. You know, I think it's interesting. I heard from a kindergarten teacher recently, and she told me that as she was reading the book to her students, she really uh, was inspired and motivated because she tends to also stick to a diet, a preferred diet of chicken nuggets and fries. She's really scared of other foods that she didn't grow up to, wasn't exposed to. Uh, lived in a smaller town, so there wasn't a lot of restaurants from from different cultures. So it's all new to her. So it was encouraging her at the same time as she's encouraging her readers and her students. So I think that has been um, something great that I've taken away. And and just as we've been discussing that the the themes of diversity, the themes of adaptability, the themes of trying new things are really universal. So I loved hearing that feedback from that particular kindergarten teacher. She's like, this is applicable to, to older kids as well. My, my daughter, who's turning 12, um, really going on like 25, I suppose, <laughs> she says that even though that the book is in rhyming codes, uh, prose, and, you know, the illustrations are, you know, are really cute and probably targeted towards a young age, she thinks the vocabulary is pretty high. She says, you've used hard words here. So um, that's another motivation for uh, older kids to, to read it, too, because there are some there are some tricky words there. <laughs> now, you said that this book is in many ways 10 years in the making. And you personally have been sort of on a, a, a very long and lifelong crusade, really, around the, the areas of tolerance and the subjects of, you know, cultural awareness, adapting to change. Uh, what led you down this path? I think that path of social justice and the crusader that you just, great word, by the way, has always been um, inside of me. I think it's been intrinsic. I think it was, you know, being really socially conscious, being a news junkie, being really interested in the world around me, being really naturally curious and culturally curious. So that's something that's been with me from a very young age. And I feel that at a very young age, grade six, probably my first committee that I was formally on, all the way to high school, all the way to the university uh, years, being on different boards, advocating for change, advocating for, for diversity. In my professional life, I've always sat on diversity committees. Um, ironic, you know, that they're in vogue right now, but they were often the committees that you couldn't get anyone to join. Or the meetings would get canceled because there wasn't enough buy-in, but it was something that you were encouraged to do and have because it looked good. You know, so it was there for maybe vanity reasons, but we were we really impacting change. And, you know, when a couple of years ago things really started to shift, and especially last year after the Black Lives Movement uh, really took stride and people were finally paying attention, it was frustrating. Because we were having conversations that were so 101 that I was, you know, dating myself back and said, you guys don't know this. This is like so basic. 
this is stuff that we I was talking about 30 years ago. How, how do people still not know that you don't use these words or that that's a racial slur? Uh, so that's been really interesting because I think progress is really, really slow and it can be really discouraging. And it's funny, right? The book was written 10 years ago. It's just as relevant today, if not more, right? It was relevant 10 years ago, but there's an audience for it now because people are talking about this a lot more. Certainly plenty of food for thought for anybody who picks up sushi and samosas. Rishma Govani, mother of two and author of the book, A Tale About Breaking Down Barriers Through Food. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thanks for having me. It was such a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Sign up for Leanne's parenting newsletter and so much more at whereparentstalk.com. This is Where Parents Talk on 105.9 The Region.